chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts, we're in our last chapter. We're going to do the uh, first 16 verses here today, Lord willing, time willing, which puts us in really good shape to finish up Acts next week. And then we're right into the holiday season here. So Acts 28, let's do the smart thing and let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here. Thank you for the time of worship. Thank you for the time of fellowship. And just pray, Lord, that we would keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you. Whatever we brought into church here this week, help us just to let it go and stop and see what you want us to do, how you want us to live our lives, and help us to live our lives for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Real quick background to get you up to speed to where we're at here in Acts chapter 28. Uh, We've been doing this same series of Paul's life here for actually about the last month or so. Paul got into trouble in Jerusalem. It wasn't his fault. The Jews didn't like him, and they made accusations against him about defiling the temple. So the Roman soldiers came and arrested Paul to find out what was going on. Well, they couldn't get to the bottom of what was going on, so Paul kind of worked his way up the Roman judicial system, and he's been kind of on trial for over two years now awaiting this. Paul finally got frustrated with how everything was going. He appealed to Rome. He's a Roman citizen. So he appealed to actually go take his case to the Roman emperor. And that's what happened. So in Acts 27, it is his boat trip to get to Rome. Well, the boat trip doesn't go well, and it ends up shipwrecked. And that's where we pick up here in Acts 28. So Paul is in Roman custody as a prisoner. He's been a prisoner for the last couple years, on his way to Rome to stand trial before the emperor, And the boat is now shipwrecked. There's about 276 people, the Bible says, that shipwreck on this island. And there are a mix of soldiers, sailors, passengers, and prisoners. And they now end up on this island after being out in the storm for weeks. Acts 28, verse 1. Let's see what happens. It says, Now when they had escaped from the storm, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling because of the cold. We're going to stop there real quick. So this is a really interesting word. This idea in the natives showed us unusual kindness. Depending on your translations, go to King James out there. It says something like the barbarians showed us kindness. Now, this does not mean that these were men with spears and loincloths that met them at the beach. This word for barbarian or native literally means that these people did not speak Greek. That's all it means. The Greeks thought so highly on themselves that if you did not speak the language, you were considered a barbarian. That's what it means. So it wasn't like this tribal group came and met them. These were civilized people. They just didn't happen to speak Greek, so therefore they were considered barbarians or considered natives. Now, real quick point about this before we move on. We need to be careful. As Christians, we are so quick to judge somebody. We are so quick to judge. And what happens is if somebody does not line up with what our belief system is, we automatically throw them in this heathen, unsaved, barbarian category. Now, I'm not not talking about the black and white of salvation. We all know that. You're either saved or you're not saved. But what I'm saying is, Christians, we come across quite often as this holier-than-thou, we're better-than-you type of personality. And we have this tendency to treat the unsaved world as these barbarians. And it's kind of fascinating because when we get saved... It's almost like we've now experienced Christ. We now know Jesus as our Savior. So we do everything we can to stay away from the unsafe world. When Christ has actually told us to get out there, and to not be tainted by the unsafe world, but get out there and be enlightened, a witness to them. But we have this tendency to look at them as these barbarians, as these natives, and we try to stay away from it. We're so quick to judge. Don't get me wrong. Sin should be called sin. That is wrong. But we also look at the example of Christ. Take the woman caught in adultery, for example. She was caught in sin. She should have been stoned. 
We'd have a tendency to forget that the guy should have been stoned too. But what did Jesus tell her? Go and sin no more. I had a real eye-opening experience. It was years ago. We uh, did a funeral out here at church, and there was a guy that was coming out to church. He passed away, and uh, none of his other family really came out here. And so we only really knew him, didn't really know too many other, other people. So we did the funeral, etc. And the family was somebody that was really not saved, really not walking with the Lord. And probably we had this little attitude towards them of this idea of, dare we say, the barbarian-type attitude, almost a judgmental-type thing. So we do the funeral, we do the meal, and as we're doing this, um, we get done with the meal, and we start cleaning up, and the way we normally do it out here is we all start cleaning up after the funeral, etc., and the family kind of leaves. This family, this unsaved, heathen, barbarian family, jumped in like nobody I've ever seen, started putting tables and chairs away, cleaning up, and were some of the best servants I've ever seen. And it just really was very eye-opening to me to kind of say, okay, we've got to be careful here sometimes. I've shared with you before, I have met saved people that are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm really not looking forward to spending time with them in eternity. You know, I hope there's separate sections. And I've met people that are not saved. They're not saved, but they're some of the most moral kind people I've ever met. And it's a struggle sometimes. We have to be careful here. So Paul runs into these barbarians. They don't speak Greek. We'll see, though, that these barbarians eventually get saved, and it's a pretty neat thing. So let's see what happens next, verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw that the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he's escaped the sea, yet justice is not allowed to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, there are so many points on this. So many points to talk about. And I love every single one of them. In no particular order, the first one, Paul. The great Saint Paul wrote half the New Testament. The one that Jesus showed up to in a vision to lead him to Christ. The one that just this previous chapter was fasting and praying and an angel of God showed up to him to forewarn him of what was going on. Paul is doing what? Verse 3, gathering sticks for a fire. I mean, couldn't Paul have basically said, Hey guys, I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm the one that the Lord revealed to what was going to happen. I'm going to go over here and just pray and fast for a while while you guys get this fire going. He was willing to out there and work. And I don't know what's happened. But it seems to happen in certain churches that the, the pastor reaches a point where they're not allowed to do any work. And it kind of seems like when you look at these servants in the New Testament, it's like, boy, let's get our hands dirty. Let's not be afraid to get out there and be blue collar and do what we need to do to spread the gospel of Christ. So I love verse 3. Paul, I'm going to get out there and gather sticks. I love that. Second thing we see, Paul comes out to gather sticks. He gets bit. And what's the reaction of people? Well, verse 4. No doubt the sea tried to kill him. This guy must be a murderer. And the sea couldn't kill him. And so now justice does not want him to live. So now the snake is going to get him. We are so quick as human beings to make assumptions and judge, aren't we? So quick. We see a news report on TV, and we already know how awful that person is. How awful. They're just absolutely awful. We hear one tidbit of a story at work, and we already make that snap decision on the coworker. We already know. They're just an awful, awful person. There's this great passage in the book of Proverbs that basically says, wait till you hear both sides of the story before you decide to make a, a judgment call. And we've got to be careful about that. These guys see Paul... Snake bites him, quick to make the judgment call. Just be careful. 
You don't know as much as you think you know. God love you, but we don't. Second thing, or I should say the third thing is, look how quickly human nature changes. Verse 4, he's a murderer. He should die. Verse 6, he's a God. How quickly do we change? I don't know how many times that's happened out here. Someone shows up at church and like, oh, this church is great. We love the worship. We love the teaching. You're so handsome. You know, just all these things. And then what happens is something happens that they disagree with us on. We have to take a biblical stand. And next thing you know, we're heathens. Next thing you know, the spirit doesn't lead us. Next thing you know, we're unfruit. I mean, we just, it just jumps back and forth. We've got to be careful in human nature how quickly we go from murderer to God to God to murderer. We have a tendency to do that. We do this in, obviously, society all the time. We're in a very sports-minded society. One week you're the hero, the next week you're the goat. We've got to be careful about that. With Paul, murderer to God. How quickly does this happen? Next point. How's this for a simple point? Paul got bit by a snake. Bad things happen in life. He got bit. Now, what did he do to get bit? He was trying to work. He was trying to do something good. You live in a world where bad things are going to happen to you. They are. Bad things are going to happen to you. And sometimes you don't see the rhyme or reason for it. It just happens. And you have to understand that as a believer, when these things happen, how do you respond? Look at Paul's response. We have no recorded words of what he said. Nothing. What does he do in verse 5? Shakes off the creature into the fire. When bad things happen to you in life, and it's difficult, sometimes the best thing you can do is just shake it off. You've got to let it go. We as believers are so awful at holding on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to. We're awful about it. And when bad things happen in our life, we get to this really whiny, woe is me type mentality. Nothing good ever happens to me. If it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. My life is miserable. And we have these awful things. Why? Because the little snakes of life sometimes come up and bite us. And every single one of us fall into this little emotional trap of allowing little things to become big things. We have one bad day at work, and all of a sudden your job is awful. You and your wife don't agree on one thing, and all of a sudden she's awful. It's been a horrible week. Why was it a horrible week? Well, Tuesday was bad. So that means all seven days are bad now. We all fall into this. I shared this story with you years ago, and I'll repeat it here real quick. It was a couple winters ago, and in my big thing to do in winter is I love hot chocolate. That's my thing. I like to have a cup of hot chocolate a day. I've had one cup of coffee in my life, and it was the most disgusting thing I've ever had. For you people that drink coffee, God love you, because I don't. Um, so I wanted a cup of hot chocolate. That's what it came So we, I went to my kitchen, and there was no hot chocolate. So obviously Dawn screwed up. I mean, that's what it comes down to. There's no hot chocolate. So I've decided I'm going to go out to work. Nancy has hot chocolate. The secretary out here, she has hot chocolate in her office. I know where it's hidden. So I thought I'm going to come out, get a cup of hot chocolate. I wanted my hot chocolate. So I go out. This is January. I go out. It's cold. I get ready to get in my car. And guess what? My car has a flat tire. So here it is, January. got to change a tire in the middle of January. It's cold. My car tire is flat. I want my hot chocolate. So I walk in the house. And I'm just grumping. I'm just grouching. Dawn's, long, Dawn's like, what's wrong? So I went out there. It's cold. I said, I got a flat tire in the most whiny voice you could ever imagine. I said, and I just want my hot chocolate. You know, we have these things. These little things become big things. You get bit by a snake. Now, we may make a joke about hot chocolate, but you know what? Things are going to happen in life. You're going to get a diagnosis that's not good. 
You're going to have a doctor's appointment that goes bad. You're going to have work situations that go bad. You're going to have family situations that are going to go bad. And guess what? It builds. This is not just a snake coming out of the fire and biting Paul. This is after he just survived a shipwreck. So what happens is we have these things that build up. And then we start building it up in our lives too. Well, my life has just been miserable for the last few months. Work's been bad. Family's been bad. Health's been bad. And so we allow all these things to build up into our life. And what happens is finally the snake comes out of the woods and bites us. Unexpectedly. Not knowingly. And those are difficult, aren't they? One of the things that makes me very angry, and I'll use that word, it actually makes me angry, is when I'm trying to do something good and it gets turned around and it gets taken the wrong way. The Bible says, don't let your good be spoken evil of. That's difficult for me. If I'm trying to help somebody and it gets flipped around the wrong way, that makes me so frustrated. And I look at Paul here. He's trying to do good. He's trying to collect sticks, make a fire, help the shipwreck people, and he gets bit by a snake. I mean, seriously, don't you wish the Bible would said this? Paul threw the sticks up in the air and said, forget this. He didn't. He shook it off. What an example to us. We as believers, the body of Christ in the world today, we're awful at shaking things off. We allow things to fasten on to us, verse 3. We stick to it, and instead of shaking the little snakes off, we walk around them with them on our fingers saying, Everybody, look, I got bit. My life is miserable. And it's like we almost have this competition on who has the most miserable life. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Your joy is not based on how many times you've been shipwrecked or how many times you've been bit by the little snakes of life. Your joy is based on Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you base your joy on the shipwrecks and on the little snakes of life, you're going to be constantly up and down like this awful roller coaster. It's Christ and Christ alone. I've used this example before, and I'll use it again. This pastor, one time I heard teaching, someone came up to him and said, Pastor, are you happy in life? And the pastor said, No. I was really surprised him. And he goes, you're not happy in ministry? He goes, you're not happy in your marriage? The pastor said, no. He goes, I have moments of happiness in my marriage. I have moments of happiness in ministry. He goes, I also have moments of unhappiness in my marriage. He goes, I also have moments of unhappiness in my, marriage, in my ministry. He goes, what I am, he goes, I'm joyful in my marriage. And I'm joyful in ministry. Because joy supersedes external circumstances. It has to. Your joy is based on Christ and not based on what happened today. That's why you can come into this church today and worship God. Because He is God and therefore you have joy. You're not worshiping Him because of the great week you had. Because what happened if you had a bad week? He's still worthy of joy. You don't spend time in the Word and prayer or serve God because of happiness. You serve it out of joy. Because you say, Lord, I want to give back to what you have done for me. So therefore, our joy in life is not based on anybody Anything, any scenario, any situation, it's based on Christ and Christ alone. If you allow another person or situation to control your joy, you're wrong for that. Your joy is based on Christ. Does that mean you're always happy? No. But you're always joyful in Christ. So, what do we see from this? Paul was willing to work. We see how quickly people are willing to judge. He's a murderer. No, now he's a god. We see him get bit. You will get bit in life. It will happen. And the last point here, you've got to shake it off. How do you shake it off? Go with me to 2 Corinthians 10, please. 2 Corinthians 10. Let's learn about this. It's one thing to say, let's just let it go. How do you let these things go? 2 Corinthians 10. We're finishing up our uh, last small group. My small group is finishing up our last small group today. And we're doing Ephesians 6 which is the armor of God. 
And if you stop and think about that, the armor of God, we're in a battle, we're in a war, spiritually speaking. We don't realize that as believers. We don't realize that. Part of being in this battle is realizing you're going to get bit, and how do you survive? 2 Corinthians 10, let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's a simple point right there. The, the battle is not in the flesh. It's not. Too often we look at the battle as this other person. We're battling this person. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What we're wrestling against, what we're fighting against, is how that person is being used by the enemy, or we're fighting against how that person is choosing to go backwards in their walk with Christ, not forwards. Too often we make an individual the enemy. The individual is not our enemy. How that individual chooses to act is what we're trying to fight. You've got to be careful. You have to separate the person from their personality. You have to. Personalities can be sinful, wrong, etc., but that person is not the enemy. That person is either a child of God or someone who needs to come to know Christ. we got to remember that. So it's not this fleshly battle. It is a war, but it's not a war in the flesh, because you will never win a war in the flesh. The war has to be won spiritually, through prayer, through fasting, etc. So how do we win this war? Verse 4, we need to pull down these strongholds, these strong positions of the enemy. How do we do it? Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought... Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought you have has to go through the filter of Jesus Christ. It has to. If you do not let every thought go through the filter of Jesus Christ, you will allow discouragement to get the best of you. You will allow depression to get the best of you. It will. So when these situations in life happen, filter them through Christ. Someone has wronged you and hurt you. Filter it through Christ. Christ said in Ephesians 4, forgive them. There's a sin that wants to pull you down. Filter that through Christ. How would Christ respond to that? We saw how he responded in the wilderness when he battled the temptation. Every thought needs to be taken into captivity. The problem is we don't like to take thoughts into captivity. We like to dwell on them. We like to think on them. We like to analyze them from every single angle and situation. And I've done this. I've seen other people do this. We sit there and we say, what do you think they meant when they said this? As far as I know, reading people's minds is not a gift of the Spirit. But we try to do it, don't we? Why do you think they did that? I don't know. Let's take that thought into captivity, because if we dwell on it, it's going to take us down a downhill road. It really is. So the first point into how to shake these things off, are you willing to take every thought into captivity and realize, I need to take it through the filter of Christ? And I'm going to be completely honest with you, some of you don't want to do that. You don't. You have trained yourself over decades to analyze, to worry, to be fearful, to be anxious, to think about it, analyze it again, and talk to everybody else about it. We need to train ourselves to say, you know what, this is pulling me into captivity. In the name of Jesus, I take this thought captive. I will fast on this. I will pray on this. I will seek God on this. And I'm not even going to talk about it anymore. Take it into captivity. Why do we need to do that? Go to James, please. James 4. Why do we need to take these thoughts into captivity? Well, 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion looking on whom he can devour. The enemy loves to devour us. James, please. James chapter 4. So since the enemy loves to devour us, it's a constant battle. Think about this. Every day when you wake up, you have three things against you right from the start. You have an enemy that wants to destroy you. That's already there. You have a world that is just under the curse of sin. That's awful. 
And then if you can get away from those two things, you still just have a sinful nature. So if I finally just leave this world and go up to some mountaintop, so I'm therefore there is no external temptation of the world, and the enemy doesn't care about me because I'm up on a mountaintop all by myself, I could finally live that righteous, pure life, right? No, because sin is just in me. In me. I had something happen this week, and it's almost embarrassing to say. I was thinking through life, and out of nowhere, I'm standing in my kitchen. Something pops up, and I figured out the time frame. It happened 27 years ago. And I had a brief moment of, I can't believe he did that. Fourth grade. (laughs) Fourth grade. I can't believe he did that. I wonder where he's at right now. I bet his life's miserable right now. My kitchen. Where'd that come from? Take every thought into captivity. It's silly, isn't it? It's absolutely silly on what we allow our mind to dwell on, what we allow our mind to think on. Take every thought into captivity, filter it through Christ, shake it off, let it go. So we learned the spiritual side of how to do it. What's the practical side? James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. First point, submit to God. Your life is not your life. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I finally want to focus on me. I focused on everybody else for so many I'm finally allowed to focus on me. That's really code for I'm selfish. Submit to God. It's not about what you want. It's not about what makes you happy. It's about what the Lord's will is for your life. I'm going to give away the ending of the story here real quick. They shipwreck on the island Malta. Paul goes and heals the governor's father. And guess what happens? The island gets saved. Paul's shipwreck led to the salvation of many. You may have had shipwrecks in your life. God can use that to lead the salvation of many. You submit your life to God. This is not a compare and contrast. Well, my life is awful. Why do they have it so good? Two points on that. Number one, don't look at anybody else. And number two, usually they don't have it as good as you think they do. We're really good at showing up to a church and being fake for 45 minutes. We're really good at that. Submit your life to God. Next one, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That word resist is such a powerful word. It means to oppose. It means to withstand. It means to plant your feet and fight. Oh, we're awful at fighting as believers. We're awful. God has told us in so many passages, 2 Corinthians 10, Ephesians 6, this is a war we're in. And we don't understand how we're supposed to fight back and resist. And I see so many Christians get pushed around by the enemy. Constantly pushed and knocked down. We're more than conquerors in Christ. Too many believers have this defeatist mentality. Why don't we resist? It's easier to give in. It's easier to let sin win. It's easier to say, I quit. You know how much work it takes to live a godly life? It's a lot of work. But yet, we know why we do it. There's a reason for it, and God's blessing is that. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, here's the problem. People hear this, and they still are in this, woe is me. And they say, I have submitted to God. I have resisted the devil. Verse 8, are you drawing near to God? Oh, I'm drawing near to God, yeah. Tell me, how are you drawing near to God? Well, I read, I pray, I go to church. Okay, now let's just be honest. Let's not pick, but let's just be honest. Do you know how many people come to church physically, but they don't come to church? 
I mean, they're here. They're physically in a building. They're physically moving their words during worship. And they're physically looking at a Bible as the pastor teaches. Spiritually, mentally, they're not here. So, how many times do we read devotions? And we just read it because it's what we do. It's like a homework thing. We read it. How many times do we pray? And we're really not even praying to the Lord. There's actually a great passage in the Bible where a man talks about praying to himself. We're kind of just talking out loud and kind of almost like ambiguously mentioning God. When you draw near to God, when you put that effort into that and you stop and you say, Lord, I've submitted my life to you, I resist the enemy, and now I'm drawing near to you. The Bible promises he will draw near to you back. He promises that. So when somebody comes into my office and they're talking about how spiritually empty they are, one of the first questions I ask them is, are you drawing near to God? And I ask them, sincerely, honestly, ask this. Are you really drawing near to Him? Are you giving this token relationship with Him? Because I've caught myself sometimes spiritually going through the motions. You read, you pray, you minister, and then let's wash, repeat. What does it really mean to draw near to God? Because the Bible promises us, when you're bitten by those little snakes, when you're shipwrecked, the Bible promises this. Take every thought into captivity. Filter it through the lens of Christ. Realize the enemy will try to devour you. Then come and say, I submit to God, I resist, and I draw near to Him. I draw near to Him. The Lord honors that. Make sure you're honestly putting that effort into that, and God will honor that and bless that. Without a second thought, He will. Let's move on here with Acts. So, Paul shakes it off. What happens next? Verse 7, in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and he laid his hands on him and he healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways and when we departed they provided such things as were necessary. Once again, Paul's shipwreck leads to a ministry opportunity. The next time you have a shipwreck moment in your life, stop and ask, Lord, is there a ministry opportunity that I'm missing out of this? Paul had to go through that storm. He had to be shipwrecked. Awful experience. But next thing you know, this island gets saved. And if you go study out the history of Malta, even today, secular history shows us this island had had a rebirth. This island had this focus on the Lord. We can trace it back to Paul. Shipwreck moments are really an opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They really are. And it's amazing how many times in life we do everything we can to prevent shipwrecks when the Lord says, you know what? I need you to go through this. Because as you go through this, I can use this to minister to other people. And that's when we say, Lord, use somebody else, right? But he wants to use us. Now, I want to also talk about this guy, this governor of the island, on how he was blessed by being a blessing to others. Can you go with me real quick to 2 Corinthians 9? 2 Corinthians 9. This guy opens up the island. This guy opens up his house. And we know from the next verse that they stay there for three months. That's pretty impressive. And since this guy was willing to open up the island and open up his house and area and bless them, guess what? He got blessed. And I want to build on that real quick in 2 Corinthians 9. But before we get to that, remind yourself, who did he open up his house and island to? Prisoners, soldiers, sailors, passengers. I am not being judgmental. Please don't take it this way, and I hope it doesn't come across this way. But if a bus would break down in front of your house, that was a prison transport bus. 
Moving from point A to point B, I doubt you would say, hey kids, invite them in and offer them lemonade. I doubt you would do that. This man is opening up everything he had to the people of society that they want to kill and forget, that committed crimes against society. And this man says, I will open up my house and my island to them. That's a pretty impressive thing. Please remember that this man opened up his house and his island as a non-believer. As believers, sometimes, I'm ashamed sometimes as believers on how often we close doors of ministry. We've got to be careful about that. This guy opens up his life, opens up everything he has, and because he was a blessing to others, guess what? He got blessed. 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Great passages here on being willing to give up our time, our energy, and our resources. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is the interesting thing about giving of our time, our energy, and our resources. There's a lot of times where we do that, verse 7, but we're doing it begrudgingly, out of necessity. Now, it doesn't come across that way because we're really good at hiding that. But how's your heart on it? Honestly, how's your heart? My wife has been struggling here uh, recently with headaches and just not feeling good a lot of the time. And what happens is, you know, obviously I get home and she's not feeling 100%. And so there's five boys to be taken care of. Five boys that want attention. There's five boys to be done. Meals need to be prepared, etc. So I get home, and, I, and if I see her or if I'm out doing something, she may contact me and say, hey, you know, when are you coming home? She just wants to rest a little bit. So I'll get home, and she's not feeling 100%. And I'm like, okay, I'll take care of stuff. So I go into super dad mode. You know, I can do this. I can be the loving husband. I can be super dad. I can be super pastor. I know it. I can do it. Five minutes later, um, I'm kind of of a grouch. Ten minutes later, I'm telling boys, make your own supper. I don't know if, care if you know how to use the oven or not. Figure it out yourself. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, honey, you're not better yet. I gave you Advil. <laughs> Begrudgingly, out of necessity, my heart's sometimes not right. Boys, let's, let's circle around mom and pray for her. So she can finally get over this stupid headache and so she can get back to doing what she's supposed to. Seriously, we have to watch our motives sometimes. We as believers are so good at, oh, love Jesus, how can I serve you? Please don't call me. You know, we do that. God is saying, let's get to the heart of this and say, are you willing to sow and give because your heart says, Lord, I want to do this for you. For you. See, here's the interesting thing. If you ever contact me and you say that you're struggling maybe financially, and I'll say, hey, let's get together. Let's talk about this. Let's see what we can do to kind of help out budget-wise. Let's run some numbers. So you'll come and you'll sit down in my office and you'll say, hey, I'm really struggling here. I mean, seriously, we only have a few extra dollars at the end of the month to cover all these bills. We can't get ahead. We can't do anything. You know what the first question I'm going to ask you is? Hey, do you tithe? Now, think about how selfish that sounds. Just think about that for a second. You're coming into my office. You're you're struggling. You didn't want to bring this up publicly. but, But I'm trying to see if there's something that can be done here, see if James can help. And the first question I ask you is, are you giving money to Harvest Fellowship Church? Does that not sound selfish? But then we don't really understand what the principle of giving is. See, by me asking, are you tithing? It's not saying, hey, forget your electric bill and make sure we're taken care of. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a biblical concept 
of giving of our time, energy, and resources where God says, when you honor me first, I will meet your needs and take care of you. And one of the hardest questions to ask somebody in financial counseling is, are you tithing? But if I don't ask that question to you personally, I'm not doing my job of teaching you the whole counsel of God's word. Because the Bible promises us, right here, read these verses one more time. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always have all sufficiency. And all things may have an abundance for every good work. Jump ahead to verse well, verse 9. He disperses abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food some supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God says, when you honor me, I will make sure you're taken care of. He says that. You realize how crazy that sounds to the world? As a believer... I give 10% right off the gross. That, that, that sounds crazy to the world. That absolutely sounds crazy. But this is the concept the Lord is trying to tell us. When we're willing to bless, we're also willing to be blessed. Now, no, it's not give to get. I want to make this abundantly clear. Don't misunderstand a teaching on giving to the Lord. It's not, Lord, I threw in an extra 10 bucks this week, so therefore you owe me. The Bible says God will be a debtor to no man. And it's not even about the finances. Lord, I read two chapters this week. Not one, two. I want that job now. That's the mentality sometimes we have. Lord, look what I did. Look how I gave. Look how I... You, you owe me. No, the Lord says, when you in faith trust me, I will make sure your needs are taken care of. That's the promise of God. This man back on this island opened up his island, opened up the house, opened up the resources to this shipwreck of soldiers, sailors, passengers, and prisoners. And God said, I'm going to bless him for the willingness he was willing to bless other people. I don't think his motive was, hey, I'll help these guys and hopefully my sick dad will get better. No. He was just willing to help and bless. We need to make sure that if we're willing to bless others, that's how the Lord also opens the door to us. It's not a give to get. I want to make sure that comes across clearly. But it's a give to give. Because, Lord, I want to be part of this kingdom that's doing mighty things. And, Lord, I give to you out of faith. It's a test of my faith to trust that you will always meet my needs and take care of my resources. And the Lord blesses that. He completely blesses that. Back now to Acts 28. After three months, please note one more time, this man was willing to open up everything for three months. We sailed on an Alexandrian ship, whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium, and after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Petula. Real quick, these names start to kind of wander after a while. I encourage you, if you have a study Bible, look at the back. You probably have a map at the back that shows Paul's journey to Rome. They're just giving you the different islands and towns they're going to to get to Rome. Verse 14, where we found brethren, and we were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three ends. Those would be about 45 miles away. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain and the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul gets encouraged by these believers that are willing to come 45 miles. Now think about this, 45 miles, 2,000 years ago. That's quite a trek. That's quite a trek. But verse 15 really hit me. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Stay with me, but just go to the right to Romans 1. You may not even have to turn a page. 
Romans 1. As you go to Romans 1, Paul talks about this blessing of encouragement. Start in verse 8 of Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. Verse 12 is the key. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. By the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul says, by getting together with you, hopefully I encourage you and then you also encourage me. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. We just had a board meeting yesterday. And we started out the board meeting with reading some scriptures. And then we started out then with prayer requests. And we said, okay, hey, we know each other. We've been serving out here together for years. Let's just be open and honest. How can we pray for each other? So we opened up some very honest prayer requests. And I tell you, that was my favorite part of the day. That encouragement that it came out of hearing these other people say, pray for me this, I'll pray for you that. And I tell you, anytime I'm involved in a small group study or sometimes after church and you just have that fellowship with other believers and you just hear other people talk about the Lord and can you pray for me or can you encourage me? Oh man, boy, that builds you up. That's that mutual encouragement of both you and me. Now here's the problem. Sometimes people come and they say, well, I don't feel that all encouraged. I come to church, I sure don't feel blessed by the body of Christ. I don't feel encouraged by the other people. Let me ask you, let's just be honest. Are you out there encouraging others? Are you out there trying to bless others? How many times do we come into a building like this, we find our seat, we sit down, we don't move out of our seat, and then we wonder why no one comes and talks to us? Because it's always someone else's responsibility to work the crowd, right? The way this system works... You bless others, you are blessed. You encourage others, you are encouraged. I remember one time talking to an individual and they talked about how they don't feel encouraged or blessed by anybody. And you know what? Their personality was not very much of a blessing, encouraging personality. It's kind of difficult that way, isn't it? The way this system works, and this is what we've been studying in the book of Acts since the beginning, this idea of discipleship, is that you invest your time and energy into someone else's life to grow them as a Christian, and then they come and invest their time and energy into your life to grow you as a Christian. And that all of us should either be discipling somebody or be discipled at the same time. So I'm either in your life helping you grow in the Lord, and then you're in my life helping me grow in the Lord. That's the way the system works. And when we don't follow that system, there is an emptiness. There is a lack of strength, because we're trying to do it on our own. We put the shields up. We put the walls up. Everything's fine. I don't need prayer. I don't need encouragement. And I have never met a single believer yet who has not needed prayer or encouragement. It just doesn't happen. Paul says in verse 15, he was encouraged by them. He says in Romans 1, I am encouraged when I'm with other believers. Jesus himself, in his time of need before the cross, asked the disciples, could you pray with me? Think about that. Jesus himself said, could you pray with me? There is an encouragement that comes out of the body of Christ. Why don't we do that? Some of us have been so hurt, so wounded by church, by Christians, by people. We put walls up. And so therefore, we never allow anybody in to be an encouragement. Boy, we walk in a weakness at that time. Think about this. Put this whole lesson together. This whole lesson is this idea of Rough things are going to happen to you. You're going to get shipwrecked. You're going to get bit by the snake when you don't expect it. How are you going to handle it? Paul, shake it off. 
How do we shake it off? Spiritually, let it go through the filter of Christ. Understand there is an enemy that's trying to pull you down. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to the Lord, and he draws near to you. Realize the encouragement of the body of Christ. Be willing to be a blessing, to be blessed as well, because the Lord says, how's your heart on this? Are you willing to do that? God honors that. And what we can learn here in this first part of Acts 28, this is not an easy time in Paul's life in any way whatsoever. Shipwrecked, bit by a snake, crash lands on an island. But the Lord used him and the Lord worked through him. And Paul was willing, no matter what the external circumstances were, he allowed the joy of the Lord to be a strength. And that's our key. Marv, we come forward here for the final song. Good shape to finish up Acts next week. That gets us into December, and uh, don't forget here, December's a busy month, praise night, Christmas program, etc. Some quick reminders, if you're interested in Angel Tree for either yourself or others, we have some forms back there, we can get those into your hands. If uh, Christmas meals, if you could have one would bless you or others, see me or see Nancy, and we'll point, write you down and get that going there for you. So lots of activities going on, we prayerfully encourage you to get involved with those things that you feel led to get involved with. And uh, we'll go over to Marv here for the final song, and let you go with a word of prayer.